Listen up. I won't sugarcoat it. This is the longest cold flu and allergy season we've ever seen, but we're not alone. We've got Instacart. Sure, you may be a coughing snot faucet who just wants mommy, but you're not giving up! Not when cold medicine, fragrant herbal teas, and honey shaped like bears can be delivered through Instacart in as fast as 30 minutes. Now let's go win the sick playoffs! Daddy, I just want my soup. Oh, sorry, Sport App says it'll be here in, in a few minutes. <laughs> Instacart for the win. Hello and welcome to the Spiked Podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and with me this week we have Spiked columnist Ella Whelan. Hi. And we're delighted to introduce special guest, Spiked columnist Luke Gittos. Hello. Coming up on the show, the cost of living crisis, the two-year anniversary of lockdown and the Supreme Court nominee who can't define the word woman. So Chancellor Rishi Sunak delivered his spring statement earlier this week amid one of the worst cost of living crises for generations. Inflation is soaring, energy prices are out of control, and economic growth is slowing. Ella, what did you make of the Chancellor's response to this? Well, it's much like any other previous um, Chancellor has responded in relation to a rolling series of crises we've seen over recent years and, and decades, which is a kind of, you know, mix between and doing everything I can and also sort of a defeated hands in pockets. Mm. There's not really that much I can do. It strikes me that the narrative of the way in which Rishi Sunak has spun the, you know, the the obvious, and everyone accepts this, difficulties that we face in the current moment. No, I'm not for one second trying to pretend that the job isn't difficult. Um, yeah. You know, it, Russia has invaded Ukraine. That's had a knock-on effect. We've had two years of a pandemic, blah, blah, blah. There's a lot of stuff he's mm. got to deal with. But it struck me that it was very like previous discussions about austerity and the need for belt tightening, in which governments pretend that will let themselves off the hook by suggesting that sort of world events or, you know, whether it's financial crashes in other countries or, or things going on in stock markets or wars or whatever yeah. it is happen. And we just can't really, we don't have a lot of room to manoeuvre. And that's an, that's an excuse. Sure, um, the, the UK didn't decide that Russia was going to invade Ukraine. Mm. And the UK didn't decide that there was going to be a global pandemic with, uh, at some points we believed to be a deadly virus. But they did make decisions. The UK government and Rishi Sunak did make, the uh, cabinet did make decisions throughout indeed the last, at least the last two years mm that have had knock-on effects and they have a, a range of decisions that they could have made now. And Phil Mullen wrote a really great long read for Spiked um, this week about the really what the fact of what could have been, that actually if you have a uh, nation that's come out of a uh, pandemic, st you know, stinging and hurting, but also in, in many ways resilient, there was that kind of moment, we talked about it on this podcast last year where actually things were looking up a space for doing something a bit innovative, you know, people wanting jobs, all that stuff. There could have been some, a really good plan here. Yeah. There could have been some big change, but uh, all Rishi Sunak's done is tinkered around the edges and, and actually in an insulting way, really suggesting that, you know, a 5p yeah. fuel cut here is going to make any difference to anyone. As some people have pointed out, you know, the price of fuel rising cancels that out, that cut out immediately. You know, we've, there's the planned reduction to income tax that doesn't even come until 2024. Um, all the while we're, you know, seeing the biggest squeeze in living standards since I believe the time of rationing, some people have put it. I mean, look, what have you made of it? Sort of in the background here is inflation, which mm. we've mentioned previously. People's buying power is going down. Uh, the value of our money 
is worth less mm. at a time when prices are going up, as you suggested. And I think the Chancellor's proposals, you know, underestimate um, the problem in two respects. Firstly, it, it as Ella has suggested, um, it's insufficient to meet the immediate problem. Yeah. You know, houses up and down the country are facing a situation where they won't be able to pay their bills. It's very difficult to identify any of the proposals that meet that threat. You know, the, the cut to fuel duty is is relevant. You know, mm. it's a big cut, but it doesn't necessarily reflect any reduction in what people will actually pay at the pumps. Yeah, because it doesn't necessarily mean that people will be paying less for their petrol. Um, the changes to national insurance that you mentioned in your introduction, you know, bringing up the low bracket, so basically lifting more people out of the need to pay national insurance at all. Um, you know, that is on the back of a lot of people are saying that this is borrowing with one hand and giving with the other because yeah. he's maintaining the national insurance increase mm. that was apparently necessary because of the pandemic. So um, it's a complicated picture. And I don't think even the Chancellor is pretending that he alone can deal with all the problems. You know, as Ella said, this is a cocktail of economic disaster that's heading our way. But the underlying issue here is that our economy, um, and this is the second respect in which the, the government underestimate the problem, is that they fail to appreciate the quagmire that we are in. Mm. And they fail to appreciate why our economy is so vulnerable to global instability. And that's because we have such low productivity. We're not creating new wealth. Yeah. So we're drawing constantly on uh, debt and um, increasingly, uh, potentially uh, increasingly erroneous terms for that debt, mm. um, failing to generate economic growth. And that means that people's wages are stagnant. And, you know, changes and volatility in global prices need not be the end of the world if people's wages can grow yeah. in line with that. It's about buying power. And so the, this proposal, the, the proposals from the Chancellor underestimate the immediate problem, you know, don't fix the immediate threats that people face and ignore the wider context, which makes us particularly vulnerable to the kind of volatility that we're seeing. Let's concentrate on just uh, one area of the problems, uh, energy. I mean, prices there are particularly um, particularly high. I mean, again, we know there is a global context to this, partly the pandemic, you know, put a squeeze on supply, um, but also the invasion of Ukraine. Russia's invasion of Ukraine means that we're, you know, trying to draw uh, away from Russian imports. But I mean, Ella, doesn't the government also have its own role to play here? I mean, it hasn't exactly, um, over successive governments really, haven't exactly prioritised, you know, getting a handle on energy costs or get, or even, you know, securing our supply of energy. No, I'd, I mean, I'd go further and say it's not that it hasn't been prioritised, but it's been actively discouraged. The yeah. idea, you know, as we've said many times on this podcast, the idea of ensuring that a nation has the energy it needs, not just to keep the lights on, but to but to have all the lights on and more, you know, mm. to, to be able to have an excess, to be comfortable, for it to be cheap, for you to have enough that it be not this kind of thing that people are looking at their monthly bills and having their eyes water. That has been part of the green narrative that has infected the Tories in particular. They've taken it on an, in a kind of lazy way as this means for a kind of moral grandstanding perhaps to kind of uh, shield themselves from the kind of nasty party image of, of old. And it's had terrible ramifications. I mean, Luke's point about the kind of longer term issue here is really key when it comes to energy, because there is the short term crisis, which is that, as you pointed out in your article, Fraser, people could be seeing energy bills of in the thousands, two, three, four thousand uh, over the next year or two. Mm. Um, and so there is an immediate need to 
get energy, uh, get energy prices down to allow people to keep their homes heated, for example. And in that respect, I, you know, in previous years, I would have rolled my eyes at stuff like, um, windfall taxes on energy companies and things like that. But I don't think anything should be off the table if, yeah. we, if we really are in the crisis we are, which we are. <laughs> um, but there is also has to be long-term plans. So the, the lifting the moratorium on fracking, thinking about, you know, we, we hear so much ad nauseum about different energy uh, alternatives and everyone then just says wind and solar yeah. in this really kind of lazy way, which is completely factually inept. If you mm. look at the levels of, you know, the amount of wind farms you'd have to create to be able to, you know, blow a fan in someone's bedroom. I mean, I'm, <laughs> be, I'm being ridiculous, but it is ridiculous. Yeah. And there is no ideological willpower within the Conservatives to take this on as a political issue because it's not just a policy thing and it's not just a kind of, it's it's actually that energy is not the same as, you know, people going to food banks. It has to be a central tenet of the infrastructure yeah. of a society and it has to be taken seriously and you have to have political vision. I mean, nuclear, whatever it is, you have to have a long-term plan the Conservatives don't want to do that. I mean, Rishi Sunak actively said that he's not interested in talking about fracking or gas. So what can you do? The other aspect of this is that there has been a kind of, um, in the media, there's almost a valorization of rationing sometimes. You know, mm. I'm reading, I, you read one day in the paper about people who are struggling so much with their gas bills, they can't even afford to cook their food. And then on the other hand, you, you know, turn on the radio and you hear someone on the BBC saying, isn't it great that we're finally, you know, learning to use less energy? I mean, Luke, isn't that, again, a central problem here that, that we think it's almost immoral to use energy? Yeah, absolutely. I'd go a little further and say the most insulting aspect of Rishi Sunak's spring statement was the VAT freeze on eco-friendly home improvements. Yeah. Um, you know, the idea that cutting and, and halting VAT on things like fitting solar panels, better insulation, etc. It's insulting for two reasons. One, because it puts all the burden of solving the energy problems on individual consumers. Mm. You need to change your home in order to do this. But secondly, and more obviously, it's, it's targeted at those who can afford, even without, even with the, the VAT freeze, yeah. to, to make these kind of changes to their home, and also focused on those who have the power to do it. So obviously, when we're talking about the cost of energy, Sunak's proposals are basically focused on middle-class homeowners mm. and telling them that you need to completely refit your house in order to save on energy. Yeah. Um, it's a completely bizarre way of looking at the problem. Um, the nuclear in issue is interesting because, you know, the one, one discussion that has emerged from the invasion of Ukraine is around energy dependency. And Boris is at least now making some noises around nuclear power. People are starting to see that this is a real avenue that should at least be explored. Yeah. Um, so hopefully that will develop. But Ella's right. I mean, it, it takes a, a leap of faith and imagination in order to think in those terms. And this government clearly aren't capable of that at the moment. And um, let's talk about another shocking story from the past week or so. Um, P&O ferries sacking um, around 800 workers via a pre-recorded video message. This really seems to speak to the decay of British capitalism. Some of the, you know, people are obviously exercised about the way these people were sacked, but it does speak to a deeper problem in our system, doesn't it, Luke? I think so. I think P&O is a failing company. Their justification here is that if they didn't effectively make their entire, well, a huge chunk of their crew redundant and replace them with agency workers that they're paying a ludicrously low wage. Around they, uh, one pound eighty an hour, it's, according I mean, it, to it, the it, union. It beggars belief, doesn't it, mm. that they can do that. Um, and arguably the, the, the individual seafarers may well have a claim against 
um, P&O, notwithstanding everything else of the, the legalities that we can talk about, you know, this looks like a completely unfair dismissal and completely wrong, both in law and, and morally. Mm. Um, and, you know, in the background here is the story of a collapse of a, of a, of a company, uh, P&O, which, you know, arguably was at one stage a pretty big British institution, now failing so badly that they need to resort to really dastardly, arguably completely immoral tactics mm. in order to stay afloat, excuse the pun. And um, a lot of people talked about the fact that, you know, this is a company that's owned essentially by the Sovereign Wealth Fund of Dubai, partly registered in Jersey. Ships were built elsewhere. Mm. I mean, is there a, a problem of uh, globalization here? You know, the distance between the management and the workers, do you think that's an issue? Well, I know that William Clauston wrote for Spike this week about the need to take these kind of things in-house, as it were, mm. the kind of most basic infrastructure of a society, it's transport, you know, ferries, trains, things like that, um, need to, not just need to run properly, but also you need to have the people in those jobs to be secure. It needs mm. to be a kind of healthy system. And so I think there is a problem with um, whether you want, you know, globalisation or whether you want to call it a kind of dispersing of workers' rights and the government does have something to answer here, you know, with the with the proviso that this is primarily PO um Ferry's problem and their fault, which is that there was this kind of mess that emerged. There was the suggestion that there were ministers coming out and saying, well, we didn't know anything about this. And yeah. then actually it emerged that the Department for Transport had been told, but in fact they didn't legally need to be told because of a loophole that Chris Grayling created when he was the um transport secretary a number of years ago meant that actually P&O ferries had no obligation despite employing 786 British workers to do anything. A country that left the European Union, fantastic, but claimed and its leaders claimed there's going to be no effect on workers' rights or anything like that. We set the rules, we set the terms. It's just a reminder that actually that doesn't automatically happen. Yeah. And that even though it's, you know, things like Brexit mean that we do have more control, you don't trust um, either Conservatives or the Labour Party, as it happens, um, who are sounding off a lot now, but didn't at the time in relation to Chris Grayling's change, um, are, you know, not to be trusted with these things. But the other thing that I wanted to mention is that you watch the um, committee that happened this morning, and it's all very painful to watch. The select committee. The select committee, yeah, we're um, kind of quizzing the, the boss of P&O Ferries. And um, he was asked... You know, would you do this again? And he said, "Well, yeah, because I, I, I was losing profit." And it's just a little reminder to everyone that you know, <laughs> there's all this noise about you know Ben and Jerry's being lovely and bosses giving their workers self care and free yoga treatment. This is what capitalism does. This is what big business looks like. It has always done this. Mm. And so, can we remember that when sort of feigning shock that they would sack 800 people to save the business? It's quite obvious that that's what they were going to do. Luke, do you want to say anything briefly on the? legal situation. It's worth recognising that even if this had been unlawful, mm. the breaches that they're talking about are relatively minor in that, you know, it's about notifying the Secretary of State that mm. you're going to make loads of people redundant. It's about notifying the places where the ships are based that uh, you're going to make, you know, you're going to take certain steps. Um, and so it's all very bureaucratic. And yeah. of course it does the consequences of failing with your bureaucracy in this area, you know, it exposes P&O potentially to an unlimited fine and even a prosecution. But the key thing here is that this should be recognised as something that's immoral to do, whether mm. it's legal or not. Uh, and it should have an impact on P&O's brand. Mm -hmm. I mean, perhaps they don't need any more problems with their brand, <laughs> given where they're going. Mm. Um, but that's what I think we need to remember, that we should have some sense that corporations should behave responsibly. And that's the failure here.
So this week was the two year anniversary of lockdown. It was the 23rd of March, 2020, when Prime Minister Boris Johnson gave that quite chilling instruction. Um, you must stay at home. Ella, I mean, looking back on this, this is quite an, ex I mean, it's unprecedented, everyone said at mm -hmm. the time, but it was quite crazy, really, what happened yeah, in this country. It's extraordinary. And I think it's easy to forget how weird it was. And, and it's easy to forget how terrified we were in March. Mm. And I challenge anyone to, you know, tell the truth about suggesting that they were blasé about it because actually <laughs> even the most stoic people I know did think, hang on, what's going on when the news first came out about mm. um, this virus. But it's also important to remember that 2020 was two years ago and we have really only just and not completely gotten back to, well, we haven't gotten back to normal, but we've only just accepted at a kind of government level and a sort of social level yeah. that the restrictions that were put in at that time are not necessary anymore. Even just that, it's, it's, there hasn't been a huge change. <laughs> there is still a real um, level of kind of space for this suggestion that lockdowns could be used again in the future. We've had, mm. you know, discussions about what to do with the flu, what to do with other viruses. There's rumblings in the news now at the moment about the fact that there are COVID infections increasing in certain elderly, uh, you know, cohorts of the elderly. And there's, ooh, it, and it keeps coming back to haunt us. Yeah. And I think we have to cast our minds back to that time when we were all put under house arrest by a government that had previously waxed, you know, about being liberal <clears throat> and just just remember how um, damaging that was actually and how even though in times of emergency, I think um, when you can understand why serious measures are taken, and I think most people in Britain did take it quite seriously, that it went too far yeah. and that particularly in places like Wales and Scotland, it went way, way, way <laughs> too far. Uh, and answer, you know, there needs, the government needs to answer some questions about that or be held to account. Lord Justice Hickenbottom told the Joint Committee on Human Rights that this was the possibly the greatest um, restriction on restraint on liberty in British legal history. I mean, you'd recognise that, right, Luke? Absolutely. And the people charged with enforcing this law have come out appallingly from this. Mm. We must never forget that the vast majority of COVID prosecutions were brought unlawfully. Yeah. Absolutely remarkable that the Crown Prosecution Service, the police, went way beyond the remit of what were very draconian laws. Yeah. So they didn't even have enough power. They took more. Yeah. And that should be very concerning. I think the government does deserve credit for getting rid of those laws. Mm. We are in a position now where the vast, I think all of the legal restrictions have now gone. Yeah. Um, and it was, I remember being very worried that these would hang around in some form, remain on the books. Mm. We know that they really took liberties, so to speak, when it came to extending the period of emergency. Yeah. You know, this emergency legislation lasted for two years. Um, but I am glad that we've cleared the decks because there was a real threat that these just became part of our culture. Um, and it looks as like, at, le at least at a legal level, we've avoided that outcome. What have you made of the fact that um, there really wasn't that much opposition to lockdown? I mean, I'm not talking just about in the media, the official opposition obviously went along with it. But I mean, what about all those sort of human rights type groups that you obviously, you know, end up working a lot with Luke in the, in the legal profession? Why didn't they say much, at least not at first? It's very interesting. In one respect, human rights lawyers were very prominent in the lockdown in that you had commentators involved in human rights law, people like 
Adam Wagner, people mm. like um, Silky Carlo. These people um, were very good at chronicling the appalling way in which this legislation was made and the appalling way in which it was enforced. So I would argue that there were some, there were human rights um, activists out there doing a good job of keeping an eye on what was going on. What was very noticeable in, is that the human rights law had absolutely no yeah. role. There were judicial reviews which were dismissed out of hand um, based on human rights claims. And the Human Rights Act, our actual human rights legislation, paid no, played no role in this whatsoever. And what I think the whole crisis really illustrated was the threat to our freedom comes from executive power mm. um, and the bypassing of legislative scrutiny. So those two things were absolutely central to the way that the government made law, executive diktat and the lack of parliamentary scrutiny. Um, and if we allow that t trend to take hold, that we respond to crises with s serious law being made without any scrutiny whatsoever, that will be a very dangerous hangover from the pandemic. Definitely. I mean, also, as well as losing our, um, you know, everyday liberties, our ability to socialise, to, you know, um, meet the people of our choosing. We also lost a lot of free speech as well. I mean, there was a, there was quite a concerted clampdown on dissenting voices. Ella, mm -hmm. what, what did you make of that? Yeah, that, I think that was one of the ways in which um, it was very obvious that this was not just about, not to buy into any kind of conspiracy theory, but that this wasn't just about an immediate desire of a government to take the sort of the steps necessary to protect a society and citizens from a, a deadly virus, but that it was about maintaining some kind of political control over the situation. And, you know, in a different, in a different context, you, in a, in a, under a different government, mm. um, not, not to sort of suggest that the opposition party would have been any better. The Labour, Labour was terrible throughout the last two years, wasn't an opposition party. <laughs> um, but that under a different government, you could have had discussions about whether or not lockdowns were effective, whether or not, um, you know, introducing the idea of vaccine mandates had a good mm. effect on the vaccine take up itself, you know, having all these kinds of open discussions. But because we live in a context in which public knowledge and and trust in the public is at such a low ebb, you know, this suggests there is just basically this idea from politicians that if you give people um, the full range of facts, they'll always pick the wrong one, or they'll, they'll always yeah. pick the wrong opinion. They'll never they'll never go in the right direction, or at least they'll never go in the direction that you want. And I think you know it had ramifications for free speech we saw you know things being blocked on youtube we saw radio channels being taken off air all the rest of it signs being put on twitter posts um warning people but i think it also had an effect on the way in which people interacted which was there was a huge amount of bad faith going on because people were testing the limits and pushing the boundaries of this in sensible ways so yes they did go and meet each other on park benches mm. in see you know early in the morning to avoid the police <laughs> and no, nothing happened of it, but they weren't open about it. And I think lots of people did things in secret because they were worried about either being called a COVID idiot or being cast as a kind of, um, as a sort of threat to society, someone who wanted to kill granny. And that I think, well, that mistrust in each other will have a lasting effect, has had a lasting effect because you need to have uh, people able to talk about things when in times of crisis or otherwise governments get away with bad legislation or worse you have a lasting impact of a mistrust of free speech which we're seeing in relation to the war we're seeing in relation to other issues talking about the lasting impacts obviously you're right the consequences for free speech are pretty profound misinformation you know really took off as a as a 
as a category of speech that governments and big tech felt they needed to clamp down on and that and you can see that now in particular during the war Luke, I wondered if you wanted to speak, if there's any other particular harms you wanted to speak to, whether the harms to education, to health, the economy even, we, you know, we're still living with that as the first section. Yeah, well, just, just tying it back. I mean, the, yeah. the pandemic is is was hanging in the background of this economic crisis, barely talked about. Rishi Sunak started his approach by saying, started his speech yesterday by saying that the uh, pandemic recovery is going very well, which, it, <laughs> yeah. which you know, in, in, in some respects, it's right to say that it is. It's, it's performing better than people expected. Yeah. But um, the OBR made clear that when you look in the detail, um, that recovery is largely dependent on those industries that were able to furlough, work from home, et cetera, the mm -hmm. kind of service level in, economy. Um, and the people that aren't getting back to normal, that aren't recovering in the same way, are the low-income workers, the manual workers, mm. that the effects of the pandemic are still um, cascading onwards. And we said, we made the point continuously on Spike that this was, the class divides were emerging yeah. in the context of the lockdown. That was always the case. There was a, a, a layer of middle-class society that could sit at home, not have to go to work, mm. work from home, get all their stuff delivered by Amazon or whatever. But the rest of the country is still feeling the economic shock of the lockdown in a way which that layer is not. Yeah. And that, so that divide still persists. Unfortunately, it's that layer that has most of the voice. I mean, I remember actually doing um, an episode of the BBC's Big Questions um, back in January. So in the middle of the third lockdown and every, you know, audience member piped in via Zoom was saying how brilliant the lockdown was because they could, you know, hear birds sing and they could go for pleasant Reconnect country walks. With their dog and re and, yeah, yeah, re yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's just extraordinary. But which about. might be true. And, you know, there's lots of people who spent the time in the lockdown or on furlough and thought, I never want to go back to my crappy job. And mm. fair enough. The but, great resignation, as it's yeah. been dubbed. Yeah. And, and, you know, a bit of perspective does wonders for people. Let's not pretend that there weren't some upsides. But this whole the furlough thing infuriates me because it's like you say, Luke, for people who are who are generally comfortable, a 20% pay cut, which is what furlough was, is, is a nice price to pay for seven months at home doing what you want. Yeah. And you know, lots of people that I know took up hobbies and they had a great time. That's fine. But if you are not at a comfortable level financially more generally, and then you get 20% taken away from you, mm. that means that you, even as basic as it means that you don't have any space to maneuver, to have a nice life to, you know, not the cinemas were open, but like to do yeah. something nice. And those people haven't recovered from that. And so then Rishi Sunak is now telling people who have suffered a pay cut for the last two years, you're going to have to suffer more of a cut. And that that lasting impact of the pandemic, this kind of pretense that Sunak was the hero in it, and he did do good things. And as you say in your article, Fraser, hmm. it could have been worse. Yeah. Fine. But that's as far as I go with <laughs> praising him. <laughs> So finally, let's talk about the US Supreme Court nominee, Katanji Brown-Jackson. She has been quizzed on what is apparently the most difficult question in the world, as, as we've learned in the UK, but it, the question's now moved to the US, on what is a woman? And she struggled a fair bit and said, I'm not a biologist. Luke, do you want to say something on this? Well, I think it's fascinating. Um, I mean, if a biologist had come out and, and gave her a, an opinion mm. and said, uh, a woman is someone with female genitals, that biologist would probably be cancelled anyway <laughs> in today's day and age. Yeah. So it's very difficult. It is a difficult question because everyone's 
too scared to state simple biological fact yeah. in an in an open way. And that's really troubling when it comes to someone who is taking a seat in one of the most powerful institutions on earth. I mean, the US yeah. Supreme Court shapes law mm. in, in a way that the UK judi- judiciary doesn't even, you know, that they have a huge political influence in the United States. Um, and I think what this signifies is that people, including Supreme Court just, just judges, are terrified of saying the wrong thing on yeah. this subject, even when it comes down to something as basic as the definition of a woman. I mean, there is no ambiguity mm. biologically around that, and it's not particularly complicated. This symbolize th- this indicates that people are scared to say it, and that's a really terrifying thing. It's a question of can you tell the truth here? Can you yeah. be straight with us? Can you speak to a nation that you're seeking to represent in layman's terms? You mm. know, in the most in uh, reflecting what the vast majority of society believe. The vast majority of society understands that, you know, I think I put it in my article as the sky is blue and the grass is green. Yeah. Women and men are divided on sexual difference. And I think the reason why this is so important, uh, people have made jokes about the fact that, you know, you know the difference between a giraffe and a dog and you're not a zoologist and all this kind of thing. And it's <laughs> you know, largely stupid. But if she was on the Supreme Court, mm. one of the most major threats to women's freedom at the moment is abortion rights. And if you have a Supreme Court judge who is unable to define who a woman is, how the hell do you expect her to fight for and argue for a protection of women's rights under Roe versus Wade when we know that from heartbeat bills to six-week abortion bans and all this crazy stuff that's happening in America, you know, women and the question of women's bodily freedom and their biology is of central argument. So she better learn yeah. if she doesn't know already what a woman is, because she, the Supreme Court has some serious, there are some serious challenges facing Supreme Court judges, worrying challenges that relate to women specifically, not trans women, not men, women and their bodies. And look, the, the context of the question was was relating to a quote from Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Do you want to explain that? Yeah, so Ruth Bader Ginsburg, or RBG, as mm. she has now become known, was a huge liberal hero on the Supreme Court for a long time. And she was a, a sort of feminist activist responsible for some really key decisions in bringing around women's rights in the United States. And Ruth Bader Ginsburg recently passed away. And her, the question that was asked to this nominee was, was directly a quote from Ruth Bader Ginsburg about the differences between men and women, Mm. which is interesting because you're seeing now passage into potentially a new new, uh, sort of era of judicial thinking on the US Supreme Court. How persuasive is this going to be? You know, is this new woke ideology going to take the place of that kind of more progressive, female-orientated approach that Ruth Bader Ginsburg was famous for championing? Mm. Are we seeing the death of that old liberal approach to women's rights and the emergence of something completely different? I agree with Ella, it's very worrying. Thank you for listening to The Spike Podcast. We're back every Friday and you can now watch us on video too. Check us out on YouTube or go via the Spiked website, which is spiked-online.com. See you next time.